Hear God's word from Psalm 124, a song of ascent of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against them, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is God's word. It's completely true. And it's given to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that these words on my page and on their pages would connect us to you. That this would not be an exercise of, of um, ritualistically trying to curry your favor, but Lord, that you would actually meet us by your spirit, that we would see your son Jesus, that we would experience your delight in us through him because of his work for us through this text. Show us your heart and help us to believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 124 is not an underdog story. All right, it's really important. It's not an underdog story. It's not the story of Rudy getting on the team and, and you know, winning. It's not the story of um, Rose High School beating some 7A state school in North Carolina for the championship. It is not an underdog story. You see this insidious principle that leads us to scripture, that makes us believe something simple and yet terribly wrong about this story is this. God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard this before? That is not true. That is a lie. That is not scripture. And if your heart is like mine, though, you'll come to this and you'll sort of resonate with, with David's character and the way he's seeking the Lord's help and the way he's praising him. And whether or not we know it, we begin to actually perpetuate this lying principle that God helps people who help themselves. I run the race, he helps me finish it. He saves me and I, and I grow. He starts, I finish. At the end of my rope, he'll help. These are subtle examples of this principle. And the truth that cuts at that, of this text, is this, that God helps his helpless people. God helps his helpless people. Helpless is an operative word here. In fact, it is the very place that God moves toward us. We so often live as if in our worst moments and our deepest, darkest, most painful areas of shame 
are the furthest from God. That is a result of believing that God helps those who help themselves. Instead, Psalm 124 teaches us through David's inspired song that God helps his helpless people. As we move to this text, I, I just want to put a disclaimer out there that for a little while, it, it, may, be, it, it may seem too dark. It may, it may land on you with a sobriety you weren't excited, you weren't ready for um, in coming to worship. But I think, I think it's true, the text, and I think it'll help us resist something that we naturally do by the time we come to the end, okay? So if you'll bear with me as we sort of consider our fallen condition together uh, through this song, okay? So there, our, our big point is that God helps his helpless people. Therefore, left to help ourselves, we first are swallowed alive or swallowed alive. David, he, he imagines this figure. Did you, did you see it in verses 2 and 3? They rose up against us in anger. Verse 3, they would have swallowed us up alive and they would have, as their anger kindled against us. I really resonate. I, I, I know this is absolutely true, but as someone who can be a little bit dramatic, I just appreciate the hyperbole um, that can sometimes sound like it's coming from David. Like, I mean, he's like, man, they're going to eat you? Like, they're, they're, they're going <laughs> to... That's the image that, that is coming to mind as he looks out. That his people, Israel, is going to be swallowed alive. Now, let's help us understand what could be the historical context of, of, of this passage. There's a couple places first of which you don't need to turn to, but is in 1 Samuel 31. And this details the death of King Saul. You remember Saul was the king that the people had chosen, not the one God had chosen. And he was first, and then David, then David's son Solomon. So 1 Samuel 31 tells a story of Saul's death. And if you don't remember, let me quickly tell you, the Philistines were, were moving against Israel. And at this point, in, in this chapter of, of, of the Bible, we're told that they've already killed all of Saul's sons, including David's close friend, Jonathan. And they've critically wounded Saul himself. On the run, sure that he's about to die because of this fierce enemy called the Philistines, he asks his armor bearer to kill him so he can not be brutalized and abused publicly, right? His armor bearer says, no way. And what does Saul do? He actually kills himself against, out of fear of this invading force. But we fast forward to 2 Samuel 5, and we're told the story of David defeating the Philistines. He's already done it once. God's already done it once through him, right? With Goliath. You remember that story? God has already delivered God's people through David against the Philistines in that uh, through that miraculous and divine defeat. And he continues to use David for his glory against the Philistines again. But if you read that story, it wasn't that simple. David had retreated to a stronghold 
He had a band of brothers kind of before Saul died. And then afterward, he's finally, they're finally coming to terms with the fact that he is, in fact, the anointed king of God. He has been put on that throne, and he is now leading all of Israel, which is still not much. And in 2 Samuel 5, he asks the Lord, will you, will you help us? I can't do this. We can't do this. And so as he sees this army surround him, perhaps as he's recounting that, and he writes 124. We don't know that exactly, but he could have. The first image that he wants to give to God's people to continually sing about is that of a monster swallowing God's people. Alive. This, this word alive is, we know exactly what's being conveyed here. It's, it's just, it, it's happening swiftly and quickly. If you're a Marvel fan, it's Thanos' snap. If you remember the, the tragic days of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was the atomic bomb. If you watched a terrible movie called Deep Blue Sea with Samuel Jackson, it's the shark that just came and ate him. What David is seeing is a force that apart from God's absolute divine intervention will swallow them. And here's where I want to move this to us with each point. Because as, as we sit here in Pitt County 2021, we're, we aren't facing a literal army seeking to tear down Christ Presbyterian Church. What I want to do is, is sort of move this toward the enemy of our souls, which is sin, which is our rebellion. Let me put it this way. If God had not been on our side, we would have been swallowed alive by our sin. Here, I want you to hear that this, these disorienting effects of sin in our lives, the, the way in which we, we ask the question one day, how did that happen? I was in the doctor's office a few years ago, just getting a, a routine physical. I, I got so defensive when he just like called out my diet right there. He said, man, you, you really gotta, you've got to stop with the french fries. That's his job, right? But I was, I was mad. And see, I hadn't connected the fact that each and every meal I had with a youth would, would result in perhaps some unhealth in my life some years later. They were like benign choices. They didn't, I didn't, they didn't add up. Without God's help, we'd be swallowed up by our sin. It would be a surprise. It would be entirely disorienting. Tiger Woods was a sports hero of mine. And maybe you remember how disorienting it was to watch someone who appeared to have it all entirely implode. In high school, I found myself dabbling with uh, what are often referred to as performance-enhancing drugs. I, I really didn't get all the way in like some did, but I, I was really enjoying the strength I was developing and the physique that I was beginning to see. Dory didn't get to see that part of me. Um, but there were some brutal consequences. And as a 19-year-old going to college, they were pretty embarrassing. 
These drugs had created a hormonal imbalance in my body. And one of the nasty effects was uncontrollable and quite hideous acne. And so I had to be put on this pretty powerful acne medication and it was just, uh, what did I do? I didn't think it was the great decision to make, but I didn't think it was horrible. I wasn't hurting anybody. And after a few months and a year of doing these things, they began to do something to me that I had to come to grips with. We are helpless apart from God. So my, my question for you, as we consider David, he's looking out at this army that's about to swallow him alive. They're, gonna, they're just going to take us all in one fell swoop. And as we move toward what it means for us to, to live our lives, and what, what does it mean for, for choices that we've made, that apart from God's self, we, we don't see them as terribly wrong. We're swallowed up by them. Have you thought of anything as I've shared a few of my Examples, God helps his helpless people. Left to ourselves, we are swallowed alive. Second, we are swept away. This is verses four and five. Then the flood would have swept us away, Lord. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Okay, David, we get it. Like three times, like you're about to get wiped out. So the first image was, was this creature capable of, of swallowing us alive. The second picture that David paints is that of a sudden flood. He pictures his enemy as this once threatening dry desert that with a little water, the threats of dehydration become drowning Perhaps you've seen a dry riverbed and, or you've been out west and you've actually seen a land scorched by heat. All moisture has been sucked out of it and leaving sort of these juts and these channels, these wadis, isn't that a fun word? And when the, just a little bit of water, because the soil is so porous and it doesn't really absorb anything, what does it do? It, it, it produces flash flooding. It's a very common natural disaster. And the results of this could be tragic. You could lose crops. You could lose livestock. Worst case scenario is you could lose your family. What David is doing as he brings this picture of this uh, brutal figure and this, this picture of disaster is he is saying how serious this threat is against his life and that of God's people and how little confidence he has in fighting it. Here I want us to think about what I've sort of dubbed the, the overwhelming, the flooding, if I can use that imagery, effects of our rebellion and of our selfishness. For some of us today, we... There's just something that just keeps rattling around in our hearts and in our souls. Like, we, we just can't escape the shame of it. We just can't, like, get rid of it. Like, it just constantly recirculates. Sometimes it's far off. Sometimes it's right in our face. Perhaps it was 
a decade ago or even this past week. But if you're like me, you, you have become acquainted with what it means to, to, in some ways, drown in the weight of your guilt or your shame. Sometimes I see this behavior in me come out when I become hyper-defensive. <laughs> Not like the doctor, perhaps. But if, if anyone is critical of me, I'm, I'm incapable of receiving critical feedback. Have you sensed this in yourself? Is there any cynicism in you? Like you, to sort of get yourself out of the weight of being wrong, you just become very defensive. Do you know people like this? If you don't, you might be that person. You see, sin makes us move inward. When we're, when we're faced with reality that we could be swept away, we try to get small and, we, and our vision is stunted. We, we don't see other people's perspectives anymore. Their problems are nothing compared to our own. Its overwhelming effects begin to make us want to clamor for control and become, as you've heard it said, the captain of our own souls see, left to ourselves, we are not ready or at all capable of helping ourselves. We are helpless, just as David and God's people were helpless in the face of this army that threatened. The final image we see is that of this snare. God helps us helpless people and David first begins to write, and, and, and we sing about how this, this creature would, would swallow us up if God would not move in to protect. To make matters worse or to heighten our sensitivity to the threat, he paints a picture that we will be swept away. And then finally, this sort of gruesome, agonizing version of defeat he presents with a snare. Who has not given us as prey to their teeth? We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. I couldn't help, like I, I drew teeth on the outline here. Like, it's as if David is saying like, okay, we can get swallowed alive. <laughs> Would you rather kind of question, right? Uh, I'll go with the quick and swift or how about the drowning option? No, I think I'll get mutilated. The threat was, would have been agonizing. And for, and for David to actually move toward them, just naturally, militaristically, what he's essentially saying is that we, we wouldn't be able to do it. We, our attempts to fight would only make matters worse. It would pro prolong and protract the pain of our death. When we go back to that passage that I referenced in 2 Samuel 5, the instruction that the Lord gave to David was to go around to their rear. You do not have to have a PhD in military strategy to know that a big army doesn't go to the flanks to win. David is recognizing how outnumbered he is in this space. 
And even with God's help and direction, he's told to flank them and to beat them by surprise. The, the image of a snare, do y'all, y'all know quickly what that was? I, I had to sort of think about that and try to figure out what he was referring to. I, um, I've seen, I don't know if this is legal, actually, so I'm not condoning this at all. But I did see uh, when I was like in the Everglades once where like hunters will like hang something strong enough, but something like essentially like a noose that would catch um, the, the alligator in, in it. And as it would try to flay itself free, it would only tighten, right? I don't know if that's a legal way to hunt those. I just remember seeing those and someone told me about that. Um, maybe you're familiar with with sort of the, the antiquated like bear trap, right? Like the, like the animal as they would be trapping for furs, they would, you know, cl- they would clamp onto the, the animal's foot and, and it only made it worse if that animal tried to, tried to get out. Y'all, this is where I think we, as we move to our lives that we begin to see how our sin keeps us stuck. To our demise, I was mentioning this to Zach because he's the one who actually knows physics. Um, We tend to apply Newton's laws of motion to our sanctification, specifically the third one that says, that understands that bodies are matter, that you have to move with equal and opposite force to change direction or velocity. And so we see the problem in our lives and our response to it is just to fight it. It's like the yin and yang version of Christianity. And you just have to hope that you're strong enough to win. And what David is, is, is saying is that if, if we move toward these people without the Lord's help, notice that he does help them, that, that we would be like a, like a bird stuck in a, in a snare and we would never be able to get out. In fact, as we fought it, we would actually find ourselves more stuck, more help less. See, we, I, th- I think of like patterns of, of addiction and I think about ways that, um, ways that we kind of move toward that. And, and I wrote a few of those down. Because God helps those who help themselves, right? This is the mindset that we can accidentally fall into. So we grit, we grit to overcome bad with good or we numb to overcome shame by escaping or we deny severity by minimizing or we just harm. We overcome pain by inflicting more. I have had the privilege and the burden of hearing people who, who have made choices that they just regret and they just can't escape it. And something about that choice is literally on their body, like forever. And only by God's grace is that not entirely my story, but I know what I do in those moments. I just try to get stronger. I try to avoid more. I try to run faster. Try to escape, try to numb. 
God helps us helpless people. As the enemy moves in, David says, who is capable of swallowing them alive? As the enemy moves in, as David describes, is, is capable of just wiping them off, like just totally sweeping them away. And as the enemy moves in, whose effect is that of like a predator eating prey and using its teeth and, and, and just crunching life out of David and his people. Lord, I pray that we have seen that God does not help his people who help themselves. He helps those who are in fact helpless. And as we've seen that we, we don't find ourselves in this stronghold that David was in. We're not literally faced with, a, with an army coming in. And so as we've looked at the ways that I think that, that, that our selfishness, my selfishness, my anger, my rebellious and sinful desire produce in me these same tendencies. And without God, I am entirely swallowed up. I am entirely swept away. And I'm completely stuck in the snare. I read a book uh, called Unwanted by a, a counselor psychologist named Jay Stringer out on the West Coast. Uh, I wouldn't recommend everything that he's said or written, uh, but this book proved to be very powerful as I considered what sanctification looks like. And I want to read to you a quote, right? So on the one hand, we, we've talked about how we tend to sort of just sort of grit and fight to manage our problems, right? We just want to manage them. We want to buy something. We want to cover it up, whatever it is. And this is what he says. A heart with an ounce of kindness for your life story will accomplish so much more for you than a mind filled to the brim with strategies to combat the problem. Rather than fighting that shame, let your brokenness motivate you to find greater meaning in life. If you want to fight, don't fight to eliminate desire. Fight to discover meaning. This sort of was a big paradigm shift for me. And this is why I actually think he's on to something. What was, the, what was that lie that our first parents believed? That by consuming that fruit, by, by moving toward the thing we were told not to move toward, that life would be better. Guys, we don't have a problem of, of, of wanting things. We just want, we, we just want the wrong thing too much and the right thing not enough. So it's, it's no, we're not trying to change behavior. We're trying to have our desires reoriented to the worship of our king. So practically for me, what this has begun to look like is I've begin to, I'm trying to connect the things that I most struggle with as the portal through which I receive the rest of the gospel, right? So old me would think about that thing and try never to think about it again. But through the help of Stringer and some other uh, pastors in my life, what is that thing teaching me that my heart most craves? Sin, after all, is corrupt desire of wanting the right thing not enough and the wrong thing too much. Or as Keller would say it, we don't want what God wants for us. 
So I try to do things that actually help me to hear from God in his word. I try to do things that help me to enjoy the body he's given me in, in helpful and in good ways. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know if it's a person. I don't know if it's a screen. I don't know if it's clothing. I don't know if it's alcohol. Whatever it is, have you found yourself finally disbelieving that you are incapable of helping yourself? This is the posture that by God's grace alone, David found himself seeking God's help in the face of this army. Verse 8 says, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This might sound familiar if you were here two weeks ago. Perhaps this line inspired the psalmist of 121. But David looks to the maker of things for his help. And he echoes Psalm 20 verse 7 here. And he says this, some trust in chariots and some in horses. Right? Ancient forms of warfare. But we trust in the name of the Lord. If it's true that our deepest problem is to settle for less, like our parents did in the garden, they settled for less. And I beg you not to settle for David here. Please don't settle for David. He didn't write this. He wasn't inspired by God so that we would find ourselves satisfied with the character of, of God's king. All through redemptive history, God's prophets, his kings, his judges, his sages, his priests were intended to wet or sharpen our appetite for more. It wasn't that God, remember God's people wanted Saul? This, this, is, this is essentially it. It wasn't that they, they wanted a king. That's a God, that's what God, that was a God-given desire of their hearts, but they wanted the wrong one. You see, Psalm 124 is an invitation to need and to want even more. We don't want to fight with no purpose, but we want to find ourselves not perpetually settling for less. David could not help his people in the same way that God promised that he would. He could not defend them. He could not save them. He would have been swallowed alive, swept away, and entirely ensnared by that enemy, enemy apart from God. Did you notice verse 7 the snare is broken and we have escaped. You see, what makes David incapable of being the one to whom we should worship is that was just for this moment. The protection and deliverance from this snare was, was, but was temporary. When we are made for and God has promised so much more, Isaiah chapter 9. We hear this at Advent and Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name, verse 8, 
the name of the Lord, the invisible name that helped David, his now alive, now manifest. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Remember that temporary deliverer from the snare? Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David, do you see how it's pointing us to what God wants us to want? A shepherd king whose ability knows no end. John 8, some scholars call it the eighth I am statement. It's debatable. But Jesus scandalously says, before Abraham, I am. That was the covenant name of the Lord, the one that's used right here in Psalm 124. Jesus is saying, I am he. I am God. I am great David's greater son. Please don't settle for David. And finally, as we move to conclude, I hope you've heard that life with Jesus, right, is not about being sold out for him or attending all the mission trips. It's not about being inspired by Jesus and doing your best to follow him. It's not what it is. The gospel is that it is to be helped by God. Finding yourself helpless without him. Do not settle for the inspirational version of Jesus. Worship the one who has fully and actually saved you. Paul writes in Romans 8.31 famously, If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? David looks out and he sees a threat that he finds by God's grace alone that he's incapable of defending his people from. So we've reminded ourselves of, of the problem of selfishness and, and sin that plagues us that we are similarly in a helpless state. That king who came, according to Isaiah 9, was swallowed alive, was swept away, and was ensnared by our sin. We read it in our assurance of pardon. It wasn't his. You see, by his ensnarement, by his being swept away, by his being swallowed alive, we receive the righteousness of God by faith. Faith. 